everybody. Uh, welcome. I am Dr. Julie Panessi, a member of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and the chair of the Ethics and Law Committee. And I'm absolutely delighted today to sit down with Julius Ruschel. Have I pronounced that right, Julius? Ruschel. Ruschel. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, and I think we're going to have a really interesting, deep, penetrating conversation today because I think one of the things that many of us are realizing as discussions about COVID go along, as the debate becomes more intractable, is that evidence and data are not as persuasive as we might have thought they would be for rational people. And we are seeing battle lines very clearly drawn and very firmly entrenched, and that you know, launching further statistics, further evidence across those lines to the other camp isn't having any kind of effect at all, or very little effect. Uh, and we, we need to start thinking about why that is and what are some of the psychological and the socio-political factors at play that got us to this place? How can we start understanding those better so that we can work our way out of it and back to a more functional kind of democracy, if you, if you want to put it that way, right? So I'm, I'm so delighted uh, to be with you today, uh, Julius. You know, I've read a number of your essays. Um, you were an incredibly, I think, bright, intelligent, insightful thinker. And I would love if you could tell people a little bit more about how you came to write about, uh, to think about, and also to write about the COVID issue. I, um, I have to tell everybody before you answer that, that the bio on your website is probably the most compelling, effective, engaging bio I have ever seen. And let me just read a little bit of it uh, to everybody who's watching. So you say, who am I? Now that you know my name and have seen my face, the typical thing would be to follow up with a flattering bio. As an academic, I've seen many of these, let me tell you. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to be cheeky. Rock hammers, cattle, financial markets, and blue jeans have all played pivotal roles in shaping who I am and how I think. But the way they fit together is something I'll leave to your imagination. Perhaps you will imagine me to be a prince among princes or a scoundrel among villains, as somebody and no and anybody, or perhaps a nobody at all. Um, so can you tell that that's only part of it, but can you tell people a little bit to the degree that you're comfortable a little bit more yeah. about who you are and how you came to write about uh, the COVID situation? Yeah, I mean, I, I really got into this just seeing that the data and the reality were no longer matching and started writing about it, to, you know, initially to try to um, communicate my ideas to family and friends and just to kind of build a framework to house this massively complex pile of, of nonsense, right? Um, but you know, as as I did more of that and kept running into a wall with with friends and family, I've started posting it more on Twitter and started writing from there and, and put the website up. Um, and then it just kind of grew from there, just trying to grapple with this madness that is so divorced from any kind of reality, right? So that that's kind of how I dove into the middle of it. And part of it was also just, I think, you know, through, you know, family stories from the, the Second World War and, and more importantly, the time period leading up to it that I recognized fairly quickly once I realized that it was not the panic that we needed, that there was a serious threat to our liberties. And I mean, when, the moment that they started talking about mandatory max, masks and border closures and all that, I realized, okay, this is fundamentally rattling the core of, of how our society functions. 
I've taken it from you know reading a number of your of your papers that you see some parallels between our situation yeah. now and probably 1930s 1940s Europe yeah. and we should get to that and talk about that in a minute yes. but before we get there um, I just want to pick up on on another thing you say in your bio which is that in the end it doesn't matter who I am what credentials I bring to the table and in some sense the less that someone knows about you or you know knows about me uh, you know as an academic the less reason you'll have to trust me and therefore the more um, you will take what I'm saying at, at face value or, and you know maybe do your research and then figure out for yourself if it fits credible or not. And I think that's a really interesting claim at this time when we treat words like science and expert as synonyms for um, perfection. And we idolize those concepts. I'm not sure we know what they mean, but we idolize them nonetheless. And if you're on the side of science and the experts, you are not only on the intellect on, on the right side intellectually, but you are virtuous, you are morally good, you are a good citizen, you're a good democratic participant. Uh, and if you are not on the side of whoever has deemed to be the scientists and the experts, then not only are you wrong, but you're shut down and you're excluded and your voice no longer matters, right? Um, so do you want to elaborate on that? Is that a fair characterization of, of some of the things you're thinking? Very much so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, watching academia, even in the, like in the few years now before COVID even came along, mm -hmm. there's, as you say, there's this belief in the expert and yet the very core principle of what makes science function is debate, it's free speech. It's not credentials. It's not consensus. It's evidence-based debate. It's a it's a an actual battle of ideas that are probing each other for weaknesses, but based on good faith understanding of the other person's position, not with an intention to win the debate. It's to bring truth to the surface, and I think that the, the cancel culture that has completely overwhelmed the academic uh, academia is essentially a, a big part of why we're in this mess right now. Is that there's no immunity or defense system against any idiotic idea that comes along. One thing that's quite noticeable to me is the complete absence of any reference within medicine to the term evidence-based medicine anymore. And I think that's convenient, right? That, that has been the driving concept behind the practice of medicine for decades now. Yeah right? Uh, the idea that looking at the evidence, the available data, the best qual the highest quality available data, and looking at it through your own critical lens, presumably, uh, is very valuable when it comes to making diagnoses and avoiding error and, and making prognoses and things like that. Uh, and very conveniently, I, I think that concept of evidence-based medicine has slipped out of not only medicine, but scientific debate, debate and public discourse because there's some desire not to look at the evidence anymore because that would undermine um, some of the political goals at play. Right? There's such a strong you know, political bent to how funding is distributed now that like in the in the academic fields that if you speak out in the wrong direction on something your career is probably toast and so i think that you know the 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 core principles that are meant to be taught alongside the actual scientific field that you're studying are have essentially been ignored and are in some ways not even being taught in the remotest way to make people understand that you know wearing the lab coat and knowing how to take the right measurements doesn't actually make you a scientist 
that makes you a technician. And what makes the technician a scientist is the, the next part, which is to put your ideas out there and ferociously debate it with those that are looking in good faith where the weaknesses are in the ideas that you come up with. So the measurements are only the first step in that scientific process. And yet we've conveniently sort of sidelined the rest of it because that's actually extremely hard and hard on your, your ego when you lose a debate. And like, it's very inconvenient to engage in that. I, I'm I think, also, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that this is where if you look at sort of the history of science, the way it evolved, like that's the, the there's a process that came out of the Enlightenment where you kind of created this this bubble of free speech that then produces good um, a, a, a mechanism to arrive at truth because of being able to in, you know work inside this free speech bubble and that bubble has essentially disappeared. I wonder sometimes I, I you know trying to think charitably uh, what it is that say the majority of Canadians think about science, how they think science works. And when you listen to uh, the public messaging or when you listen to uh, you know, what's going on in, in, in public discourse about the nature of science, you kind of get the impression that it's this perfect closed system that is actually devoid of experimentation because experimentation involves, as I think you're, you're gesturing towards this idea that it involves this potential for, there's a risk element, right? There's a potential yes. for failure, a potential for exposure, a potential uh, to realize that the work that you've spent your time and effort on for the last three months, the last three years was actually wrong. You need to take a new direction, but inherent to the scientific method is this idea that you, you make an initial hypothesis, which is, which is a guess of sorts, at your best guess, an educated guess, but a guess, and you try it out and not all attempts to validate that hypothesis will be successful. And that's exactly how it should be. I mean, if you, if you look at how science uh, like the history of science, scientists get it wrong all the time. That's in fact the the default um, position you need to take on anybody saying anything. What makes science unique is that there's a self-corrective mechanism built into the process, which starts with debate and free speech, that is able to root out those ideas when you get it wrong. And if that system isn't functioning anymore, then you have no more uh, self-corrective mechanism, right? But I think the the issue is that right from day one, like you, from your very first science class, you have a teacher standing at the front of the room, ministry of truth, telling you what knowledge has been arrived at through the scientific process. And so it gives this impression of this infallible group of people that as long as they have the right credentials, you have access to truth that nobody else has. And all through university, even it's very much that same illusion and then you know COVID comes along or any of these other hot topics and you have some expert that's hauled out by the media and or by the government that stands on a podium and tells you what the truth is what needs to happen is that the the debate that should be happening should be front and center for people to see so that you actually realize that there's multiple ideas and a weighing process that has to happen in policymakers' eyes because there's multiple opinions on many different things and those opinions have to go through the gauntlet of debate to arrive at objective truth. And as an ethicist, we're, you know, we're very concerned about informed consent. Yeah. And uh, when you close off the reality and you give people the impression that these issues are settled, um, that, you know, that, that there are no tre effective treatments for COVID, for example, that the vaccines are perfectly safe, they're effective, they reduce transmission, you know, all of these things. When you present 
those uh, pieces of information as facts to people, it undermines their ability to weigh options and make risk benefit analyses for themselves, which is foundational to the idea of informed consent, which is which is a deeply entrenched Canadian right. You know, so that that seems to me to be why, in some sense, we're you know this scientific problem. Which you know, if people are listening over the last five minutes of our conversation, they think, well, that sounds very abstract. What is this business about science? Why does it matter? Well, it, it, it's to me, it seems like it matters deeply because uh, how transparent science, science is and how uh, transparent medicine is uh, ends up deeply affecting a person's ability to make choices about his or her own body and, and the kind of lives we want to lead and what democracy looks like and things like that, right? So this is very important, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean I was, I'm thinking about the historical situation that happened in the 1930s in, you know, in Germany. The, the eugenics ideas were global prior to Germany taking them to the extreme. I mean, they actually came out of America, this idea that you could, through sort of a Darwinian selective process, produce a, a, a healthier society. We started with a health idea. But what made that idea so incredibly deadly, I think in some respects in, uh, in Germany, was 1933 when they started banning the book or burning the books. Because at that point, you create this echo chamber where an idiotic idea can no longer be rooted out because the alternative to that idea is now politically incorrect and you can't hear it. And so the, it creates this like escalating dynamic for hysteria to just wind itself up to un unlimited ends. And that's where it then produces, like, so that, you know, the, the book burning in 1933 ultimately leads to Kristallnacht in 1938 and to the gas chambers in the, in the 1940s because of that self-corrective mechanism being gone and then a society just embraces a wild idea and just continues to run with it and anyone that says no is arrested or silenced in some ways and I mean right now when you look at a YouTube channel being cancelled we're on the same path in that we don't know where this is going to end how far the hysteria goes but if your and my voices can't push back against Dr. Tams you know how far does the hysteria wind itself up? I was going to ask you, um, you know, before you made that connection to YouTube, do you think we're burning books now? Very much so. I mean, mm -hmm. the delete button achieves the exact same thing because it's not the paper itself that matters. It's the idea that you're trying to put out there. This idea that, oh, you know, you have to silence false information. No, you need to debate it. If you think I'm wrong, you know, call me on it so that we can actually talk about it. Yeah. Hold me to task on it because you know, the, 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 the YouTube channel, the Twitter channel that puts out a different idea, if that idea is wrong, it's so easy to tear it apart. But by burning it, by, by banning it, it's the same thing. It prevents you from hearing an alternative interpretation or somebody pointing out to a piece of data that isn't convenient for the government narrative. Let's, let's talk about the term misinformation for a minute. Yeah. I was reading about Copernicus and Galileo the other day. Yes. You know, crazy idea. Stuff revolves around the sun. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you see parallels between how, uh, and I'm going to choose my language carefully here. I was going to say sort of dissenting scientists, and I think it might be more appropriate to say the scientists and the physicians and others who are labeled misinformers, right? Let's let's use that language of labeling them so that we're not making yeah. a claim about whether they are, right? So yeah. people who are labeled misinformers, 
Um, do you see analogies between you know, those people and how people like uh, scapegoats, witches, Copernicus, Galileo have been treated in the past? Uh, are there, is there an apt analogy there? Am I crazy to think that, <laughs> to draw a parallel? <laughs> no, I think it's actually quite accurate. I mean, the, the history of, of science starts actually with the Catholic Church um, trying to understand the universe through a uh, religious, you know, lens. It was, you know, Aristotle and Plato's philosophy combined with biblical texts. But as, you know, and part of it is, is the technology allowing you to look at the stars through a telescope started bringing more data in so that, I mean, that's where you see theology and, and science kind of split ways that one was more of a philo philosophical approach to life. The other one was evidence-based uh, you know, looking at the world to see what what kind of conclusions you can draw from it, so that they don't actually cover the same field anymore. But what that did was, of course, challenge the the church's um, hold on truth, right? Like they they were essentially functioning as the ministry of truth, and so when these folks like Galileo come in and say, "Well, here's the evidence of something else," just like today, it was cancel culture, and in that time. It was, you know, the, the church and state that did it. Now the mob is doing it. But if the laws that are being pushed by our government are being put in, like this Bill C-36, we're back to full-on ministry of truth, government-controlled. Let, let's pause there, Jim. Can yeah. you uh, say a bit more about what you mean by a ministry of truth and whether you think we have one now and who that might be or what that might be? I have yeah, some I mean, guesses, but I'm going to let you say <laughs> Well, I, mean, I think uh, the Ministry of Truth comes from, for anyone that hasn't read George Orwell, it comes from this idea that the government has a, literally a Ministry of Truth that decides what's what's real and what's correct. And then, it, I mean, the parallels, I think that he was also referring to was things like the Soviet Union, which literally functioned that way. Um, and I think that we are very much in that, on that same path. I mean, when Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand's prime minister, stands on the podium and says, you know, the only source of information you need to listen to is us, like, you know, the government websites, we know what's up and the rest, like everything else, just assume that it's wrong and just come and look at our stuff. That is a full on ministry of truth. We're already there. And they're just now basically slowly testing the legal structures to make it official. I mean, the Biden administration has already admitted openly that they're telling the, the big tech media companies who to censor and what things should be removed as misinformation. Mm -hmm. We're there. This isn't a risk anymore. It's already here. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is that we've actually been, um, you know, investigating how to make this ministry of truth more effective yes. for the last number of years. So uh, maybe you'll remember this Cass Sunstein's book on, on, on nudge units, right? And he's been working with the yes. World Health Organization. And now we, the Canadian government, has a nudge unit of sorts. Uh, it's the yeah. Behavioral Insights Unit uh, run through the Privy Council, unless I'm mistaken about that. But um, the idea there is that there's a... Um, there's a, a, a sort of back and forth between the information that is directed at the public and then the information that comes from the public back to the government so that they can uh, gear their responses appropriately, right? Do you think that, um, I guess one question is, uh, what kind of effect do you think the presence of something like that, a nudge unit has in society? That's one question. Then another question is, do you think that that is appropriate for a democracy? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, to me, it's an absolutely horrible thing because it's essentially 
changed the, the, the nature or the role that government plays in our lives. Like in a, in a liberal democracy, government's main role is to act as defender of individual rights and not to act as a shepherd that manipulates society towards certain outcomes. And that's essentially what a nudge unit is doing is it's treating us like a bunch of cattle that are being shuffle, shuffled around in whatever direction the shepherd wants for us to you know, achieve the shepherd's idea of an, a, an ideal utopia. It's incredibly dangerous and it's, but it's ultimately what society seems to be okay with. And I think that's the, the biggest betrayal for me is that the yeah. average person that is a part of, of this hysteria actually sees this as okay to to trample rights and you know silence other people in order to achieve an outcome and that's where to me i think is the the the, the core essence of this entire catastrophe is that society is no longer holding or government to the expectations of defending individuals before mm -hmm. social engineering goals this is, I agree with you, this is the thing that scares me the most. I, I think that we have, I mean, since my lifetime as someone born in the 70s, there have been moments when government actions have really terrified me, but I have never seen the popular opinion align with them and maybe even push for them as strongly as we're seeing now. I think that charitably, what someone might say to that is, well, hold on a minute here. Uh, rights are, are all well and good when things are functioning well and when we have the luxury to have them, but we're in a crisis here, right? And we need to think about the, the greater good. And so we all need to make sacrifices and we need to put limitations on those rights in order to prevent something terrible from happening, all of us getting sick, all of us dying, right? Um, there is a, another notion, uh, we were talking about, you know, words that have evidence-based medicine is disappeared now. It seems to me another word that has disappeared is the notion of inalienable. Yeah. Well, right. I think that, that, you know, the, the point that you make about, well, rights are all well and good, but, you know, there's a crisis going on. <laughs> we it, don't have the luxury to learn, yeah. think about rights. The, the right is actually precisely what you need in a crisis so that you don't empower a small group of elites to decide for everyone else how to balance the risks and priorities in their life. So that like in, in the idea of a liberal democracy, you have the right to protect yourself and do anything you want to protect yourself, but you don't have the right to control somebody else, right? Because they also have the right to protect themselves and figure out how to balance all the risks in their life. The reality is COVID is only one risk among thousands in everyone's life. I mean, if, you're, if you've got, you know, your children are not going to be fed if you don't have a job, a virus that has essentially a 99.9% .9 survival rate is pretty irrelevant compared to starving to death. So that's the idea that grew out of the Second World War through the you know, Nuremberg Codes and the United Nations Declaration of Universal Rights is that the individual's rights at all costs have to be protected, especially during a crisis, not except when there's a crisis. Exactly. That makes, yes. And, and there's an irony here too, in thinking, you know, as a student of the history of philosophy, and we look at, you know, a British philosopher like, like Thomas Hobbes, and he explains that humans form society because we wanted to get out of the state, state of nature where we felt 
very vulnerable from we didn't want people to just be able to steal from us and kill us whenever they wanted to so we thought well we'll, we'll put some limitations on our freedoms in order to protect ourselves a little bit more and now we're finding ourselves you know victimized by the very people that we're supposed to be uh <laughs> you know getting support from and and um and that, that rights are supposed to be protected within that as you say a kind of liberal democracy um i i want to bring you to a couple of your articles which are so interesting i, I the first article of yours i read was the one on number crunching and i forget the name of that one but you i think did a really exceptional and ex insightful job of putting into context a lot of the numbers and the ratios and the percentages we're hearing that are driving a lot of the fear you know or oh, that's the big report that the lies exposed by the numbers that's it yes, yes. Yeah. and then the second one i read uh was called the emperor has no clothes yes. finding the courage to break the spell and that's the one i really want to talk about today because there i think you're really excavating some of the psychological uh causes of our our behavior now uh and also how to to address some of those so could you tell everybody i mean it, other people like me might not have read that story since they were eight or 12 or something yes. so could you remind everybody what the emperor uh without his clothes story is about and then we can get into to it a little bit. Yeah, it's, so it's Hans Christian Andersen's 1837 uh, fairy tale. And I mean, he talks about this, these charlatans, these tailors that come into town that are actually not tailors, right? They are pretending to, to be able to make the finest clothes in the world and convince this, this emperor that they can produce these amazing robes that are, you know, finer than anything else. And so they go through all the motions and yet there's actually nothing on the loom when they're weaving. <laughs> but they tell that the king that you know it, these are such fine threads that only somebody that is like only like a really like uneducated idiot would not be able to uh, um, recognize how fine these threads are so everybody shuts up so that they don't get this label of being the the, the idiot that can't see what's supposedly so obvious and so they build this entire idea up about these amazing robes and then there's a great big parade to roll out these new robes and everybody, of course, is now also afraid to point this out to the king uh, for fear of losing their head or their career, right? Sound familiar? And then, of course, yeah. as the parade goes by, there's a kid hanging out with his parents, and he looks at the, the, the emperor as he's going by, and then laughs and points and says, why is the emperor not wearing any clothes? And that's the, the spark that breaks the, the entire illusion, because somebody had a... Um, you know, the, like they the, had the, to break the glass, right? Yeah. They to, um, yes, I can al almost imagine. And now the analog would be people whispering and saying, do you, uh, are you noticing that some of this data doesn't make sense? Shh, 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 shh. Yeah. You know, never yeah. mind, right? Um, it, in that story, it took a child. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's the child that doesn't have all these, you know, hangups of an adult of what, am, what is somebody going to say? Or am I going to be judged? Is somebody going to mock me? They just say it like they, like they see it. And once the first voice starts, then ideally it, it continues to grow from there. And I think that's the, the core of this article is to say, listen, you have to say it. You have to break this illusion that makes it safe for other people to say it as well. That's the only way to, to do this is that all of us have to get out in front of our, our friends and family and actually let them know that we're not okay with this. Doing it on Twitter is irrelevant because it's not reaching the eyeballs that need to see it. It has to be sort of, I, you know, look in somebody's eyes and say, this is rubbish. Why are we so afraid, do you think? Is it shame? Are we terrified of being shamed? I think it depends on different parts of society. The shame is part of it, but I mean, the, in the academic world, 
your career is probably on the line if you say something. And so you're choosing between doing what's what's correct and your mortgage and your ability to feed your family. There's certain, that, there certainly are, I think, those kind of concrete worries people feel, but uh, but I, I, I feel like even if those things were not a risk, people still would be not inclined to speak out because there's something something else that's that's deeper, that's more personal, that's more vulnerable. Um, I mean, the, I think the other part of it is something that Martin Luther King recognized in the civil rights movement is that you know there is safety in numbers. And so if you speak out and nobody stands next to you, you're going to face all the, the consequences all on your own. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you speak out and there's a bunch of other folks that stand next to you, it pulls more people in. And what we're seeing now, I mean, academia, academia has been experiencing this now for decades, where if you speak out, nobody else will stand next to you because you don't want to be labeled as some kind of extremist nut job that has lost their grasp on reality. And yeah. so you're left standing alone. And that lesson is taught to every single person that watches it. It's sort of like the, uh, the story of like, you know, children that have grown up in an abusive household. Yes, the dad or the mom, whoever is the violent one, the, the blows sting. But the other parent that says nothing is teaching a much more important lesson, which is that it's okay and that nobody's going to come to your aid. And that's what's happened, I think, to a large degree, is that people recognize that if they speak out, they're going to be on their own. Nobody's going to stand, stand up for them. Mm -hmm. And so what Martin Luther King's recognition was is that you have to stand up at all costs, no matter how bad it gets, in order to be able to give other people the courage that they're not going to stand alone if they join you, that you're not going to flinch and pull back as soon as the, the first you know, bully club hits you. It's very interesting, this idea of you know, having the courage to, to stand out um, I've, I've talked to a lot of students and university students and parents of, of university students and and very often they will say that oh I can't have that kind of courage because I'm too afraid um, and and interesting I uh, my area of specialty is Aristotle and his ethics uh, yes. and he um, writes a lot about courage um, but never says that it's in the absence of fear no, that's right. Right. You can be a courageous person while being terribly afraid. It's just that you have enough confidence in what you're doing that you're able to push through that fear or push that fear aside. And so there's a kind of a simultaneous managing of, you know, uh, speaking out and pushing ahead if you believe it's the right thing, while also um, comfortably holding that fear in its reasonable place. Right. And I think it's important for people to have a, a discussion about this or to think about this, that the mere fact that you feel afraid doesn't mean you aren't brave and it doesn't mean you can't be brave. Right. That that speaking out probably will come with a great deal of fear, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. It doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean that you're not on the right path or something. Right. Well, and I think that there's I think the other part, too, is that people go, well, you know, I don't know that much about this, you know, virology. So I really shouldn't have an opinion about this. And that's incorrect because the issue is not whether or not you know better than Dr. Tam about how, how virology works. The issue is you should be calling out the fact that why is Dr. Tam not willing to debate somebody that has a different opinion? And at that point, you're actually calling for a completely different thing. You're not calling for an outcome. You're calling for a process to be reestablished. And that it, without that process, you have no science, you have no democracy. And that's, I think, the easier call to make. But in this, you know, 
avalanche of do masks work and and is is the vaccine correct that that actual core issue is being lost and that's the one that people need to grab a hold of that makes it easier to speak out it doesn't matter whether i'm right or wrong on any of the details what matters is somebody should be willing to stand up and debate me and have the courage to talk talk sensitive into me if i'm wrong or have the humbleness to have their own ideas also tested by me when i debate them the fact that I can't remember how many months ago now it was, but the fact that uh, the Ford government and his COVID response team was challenged to a debate and it has, as far as I know, gone uh, without response, that should be very worrisome to people, I think. And as you say, you may not know about the science, you may not know about the immunology, but you probably have an intuition about how democracy is supposed to work. Uh, and that kind of lack of transparency, lack of willing to come to the podium, lack of willing to engage with the people and answer their questions, uh, that should be setting off alarm bells all over the place, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the Great Barrington Declaration, it's this document that essentially said we should be doing focused protection and letting the rest of society go about our lives. But all the science that's in there is directly reflecting the 2019 WHO pandemic planning guidelines. That was, you know, consensus science. And so when this document was released, you didn't see, no matter how many calls there were for some kind of debate, you didn't see any of our public health uh, officials willing to actually engage in that debate. Instead, they wrote these like, you know, smear laden takedown articles that the media pushes in front of everybody without uh, giving any kind of ability for the for the folks that wrote it to respond to these smears. So that's not debate. Like the, a one sided you know, platform by uh, given to to one side of the debate with the media cheering that on is just not actual science. And I think that's where the public needs to say, listen, there's got to be real debate. Otherwise, you have lost your legitimacy as to, to govern our lives. The position that we're in now, where 80 some percent of the population has gotten vaccinated, and we are, we've just seen, uh, so we are in the, are we in the second week of August now? And depending on, you know, when people watch this, it's good to give them a sense of where we're at. And we are just starting to see, I think, a floodgate of vaccine mandates opening up. Yeah. The impression I have that most people are feeling is that that 80% of the population that's following the orders, you know, wearing masks and following lockdown orders and, and getting vaccinated, um, that those are the people with freedom. And that the people who are resisting are the people whose freedoms are going to be limited. But at the beginning of your paper uh, on the emperor, uh, does not in fact have his clothes. Yeah. <laughs> you say the government, and this is a direct quotation, will grant temporary conditional privileges tied to virus seasonality, good behavior, or whatever other conditions they choose to set to achieve the engineering agenda of the day, uh, end quote. And, you know, we have this idea that, that, that we're a stratified society, we are a stratified society, but, you know, into the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and those who are followed and those who will resist the public measures. But we have this idea that those who follow them are the ones who hold all the cards, that they're the ones who uh, will be protected by the government. Is that true? No, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if your freedom is conditional, that's not freedom, because that means that you're, what you have is a privilege that can be granted or taken away by somebody with power over your life that's not a free society that is an authoritarian tyranny the, the the irony that a lot of people miss is that a tyranny is not actually tyrannical towards every single citizen a tyranny is only 
like because a tyranny requires a certain percentage of the population to be benefiting from it in order to maintain the public support to mm -hmm. to continue to exist so tyranny is always a question of one group benefits while the other group is under the boot heel and is being harmed by it the tr the thing that people forget is that that equation shifts put a different you know a different king is born a different uh, prime minister is elected and all of a sudden everything shifts and you are the one that's underneath the boot heel and not the one that's that's sitting on the pile of gold so yeah it, it, i i remember reading um oh, so recently uh, there was an article in the globe and mail you know they were showing that the majority of canadians are claiming the majority of canadians support uh barring the unvaccinated from public gatherings which i i is probably true the majority uh but i remember reading something interesting about how um in 1940s germany that many of the German people upon hearing of the horrors in the concentration camps, that didn't make them think, oh my goodness, this is an injustice, so we better do something about this. In fact, the effect was sort of the opposite, that they just became more scared, more afraid that they might also uh, be in that situation, but then they fell more in line with the Nazi orders. So, you know, fear is a very interesting has a very interesting effect on our logic, right? And well, that, that's the thing is that the these sorts of tyrannies don't appear in full, you know, force on day one. It's a little tiny slices that get you there. And if you don't speak out soon enough, you reach the point where you're afraid to speak out because it, the the consequences are so huge. I mean, there's a story from uh, my uh, my dad's uh, side of the family. My my grandma during the Second World War, she managed to find some red tinsel paper. And so she made a little red stars to hang on the Christmas tree. And my grandpa came back like he was on leave from the war. This is in Germany. And he saw these red stars and just tore them off the Christmas tree. And she was really shocked. And he says, if anybody sees a red star on our Christmas tree, they're going to think that we're Soviet sympathizers and they'll shoot us. We'll be dead in, by morning, right? So at that point, you realize that it doesn't matter anymore what the, the regime is doing that's out of line. You just the, the act of speaking out puts you in the same in, in front of the same pistol, right? There's so much. There's so much to unpack there. I think the idea of symbols and symbolism yeah. is really interesting. We think about uh, you know the. Um, sort of the, the symbols that were attached to Jews in the 30s and 40s and the Star of David and the arm tattoos and the serial numbers on the, the prison uniforms. And, uh, you know, thinking about whether or not there are legitimate parallels between that kind of identification and symbolization then and what it led to and things like vaccine passports and QR codes and, uh, you know, vaccine cards and mask wearing and, and, and those as uh, symbols of, uh, you know, you belonging to a unique group of persons that, that distinguishes you from other persons within supposedly the same state. Yeah. yeah, very much so. And I, th I think that a lot of society functions on symbolism because to function in evidence-based conversations about everything becomes too overwhelming. So we take that shortcut and use symbols ah. to, to manage to, you know, cope with a, 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 some kind of a, a, a meaningful representation of what life might be like in order to be able to function, right? So symbols are almost a, a shorthand. Yes. Isn't that interesting? So when we see that someone has their uh, their, vac their 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 uh, vaccine passport with them, 
it isn't just a piece of paper with some numbers and dates written on it. No. It is part of a much larger discussion and 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 the culmination of uh, I, I'm not going even to say consent um, uh, obliging to follow uh, a certain narrative and it's a symbol of what's important to someone and what isn't important to someone it's very laden right it's a symbol it's, of what we have allowed our governments to yeah. do to us well yeah it, it essentially symbolizes that you accept the the, the dominant political philosophy that is now governing our society that you're obedient or compliant to some degree but it's also that it symbolizes that you're a good person because in this this idea of you know this this misdirected empathy that we've got going on right now you are a good person if you do these things it shows that you care about other people and you want to save lives and if you don't have it then you are not a good person because you don't care about other people and so that symbol is essentially preventing you from even thinking yourself through the, the nuanced details because it's so compelling and simple it's a simple narrative is there i'm going to ask you one last question here is there a limit to that do you think for most people i i, I grant your point that there is a, a desire to either to be good or to have the appearance of being good and i'm not sure which of those uh is a greater motivator right now but yeah. let's leave that <laughs> question aside but uh is there a limit to what people do either to be good or to have the appearance of being good or virtuous or a good citizen do you think I mean, this is where you start getting into some of these crazy um, psychology experiments. Like, I, I think, you know, the, the Milgram experiment where the, the researcher was sitting in the room with, you know, a, a test subject and through the glass window is a person that's hooked up to a bunch of electrodes. And then the researcher would tell the guy, well, you know, hit that button. And then every time he hits the button, the person on the other side of the window, who's actually an actor, pretends that he's getting an electric shock and then the researcher keeps turning up that dial and there's there's a you know some percentage of the population allows it to go to a full 10 the guy is screaming and then falls to the floor and he doesn't even know if the guy is dead right so there's a certain degree or a certain percentage of people that are willing to go along with this this idea of obeying the rules Without being limit. obedient and there's no limit to that to that not all of society but a good portion of it so yeah, there isn't necessarily a limit to how far you're willing to go to be seen as a good person. Like it's, if, if society views uh, obedience as a moral thing to do, where does it end? There is no end. And so it, it, the thought then would seem to be that we need to shift our values away from obedience to something else that's more important uh, and more democratic. There, there is an idea, don't you think, that what it is to be a good democratic citizen is to be an obedient one. I, I think I'm not sure where that came from, but I think there is that idea in the in the sort of the popular mind right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing to obey laws that are moral or that are reasonable, but it's not like that's where I think the individual has to have their own uh, weighing system in their mind to say, well, if if a law it becomes immoral it's actually immoral to obey that law. And that if, if the laws are being produced without the, the, the checks and balances of a, of a proper democracy, then those laws are actually by definition not a moral law. We need to think it's not just our right to make choices in a, in a democracy or as Canadians, but we have a responsibility to make sure that the laws we're following are good ones yeah. and that the people that are implementing them and enforcing them are doing so correctly and judiciously and and uh, with the rule of law and in the way that the constitution uh, directs. 
I mean, even the even the uh, uh, police that when they enforce the law, they can be held accountable, like legally accountable, criminally accountable, if they enforce a law that's illegal. So I mean, all of these mask mandates and all these things that have not passed the the, the Section One uh, Charter challenge are all illegal, and every single police officer, every single um, uh, doctor, anybody that's that's enforcing any of these mandates and pushing something on somebody is potentially legally accountable once this hysteria ends. I think in the coming weeks and months, we're going to start seeing these legal challenges emerge from the shadows in some sense. And it will be very interesting to see uh, how it gets worked out in the courts and how judges respond. I'm, I'm nervous about it because I think that, uh, I mean, we've seen now for a year and a half that the courts systematically avoid dealing with this. They are completely captured by the regime. And then the only way that that shifts is once the courts sense that there's a public mood shift that desires proper justice, again, according to what liberal democracy sees as justice, then the courts will shift again, but not until then. So if the hysteria continues, the courts are absolutely useless. So it really boils down to what you and I say in public. And by you and I, I mean like all of our viewers, everybody, every citizen has to start saying we need our democracy back. Otherwise, there's no there's no limit which is and, why it's so important to sit down and, and talk openly about these ideas ideas that are, are never going to see the, the light of day in, in main street media not the way things are going anyway uh, but it's so important that we try to you know find a sort of a crack in the narrative and pry it open uh, so that people have more more ideas to think on so that there there's a greater opportunity to engage more people and and weave a greater uh, sort of um, a store a more complex a more nuanced uh, story about what's going on how we got here and and where we can go now and Julia Julius I'll give you the last word and then we'll we'll finish up for today and I'm going to make you promise before you leave that we can continue our discussion another day yes definitely I'd love to come back all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye.